Doubting Thomas. Not sure if it's necessarily a fair description. Um, there are various esteemed periodicals that I've su- subscribed to over the years, Nature, Science and Christian Belief. This one comes from the Beano. Doubting Thomas, a character in Lord Snooty, just showing you how pervasive this name has been in, in our culture. It's not actually a word that is used, a description of Thomas that is used explicitly, though, in the pages of the New Testament. It's one that we've come to apply afterwards. Doubting Thomas here with a sort of question mark on the top of his head. If you look in the New Testament, we actually find Thomas has a different nickname. His name in Aramaic, Toma, the S is added on in the Greek, like with Jesus' name, transliterated into Hebrew, Toma, very, very similar to the Hebrew word for twin. It's thought to be sort of related etymologically, Teum, twin. And therefore, in the Greek, he comes up with the nickname Didymus, Didymus meaning twin, as a nickname for Thomas. Whether he was an identical twin, whether his twin was a brother or a sister or deceased, we don't know. Whether it was just a nickname because of the way his name sound, sounds, we don't know. But Thomas, nevertheless, is somebody who's presented to us as expressing doubt, but also somebody of considerable faith, albeit expressed in a somewhat morose way. He clearly is somebody who loves his Lord, loves our Lord. If you look back in John chapter 11, where we have the account where Jesus is about to raise Lazarus. And there's some trepidation on the part of the disciples about going back to Bethany. Jesus could be potentially facing death there. And Thomas, if you look in verse 16 of chapter 11, when Jesus suggests that they go back to Bethany, says, let us also go with him that we might die with him. That's quite a bit of dedication, quite a bit of loyalty expressed there albeit in a somewhat morose way. So when I think of Thomas, he's also somebody who's questioning. Chapter 14 of John's Gospel, Jesus describes how he's going to be returning to the Father, tells the the disciples that they know the way to where he's going. Thomas interrupts and says in verse 5, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? So he's somebody with loyalty, albeit in a morose way, and also somebody who questions. Now, John Calvin had pretty strong words to describe Thomas in his commentary on chapter 20. He described how his stupidity was astonishing and monstrous, how he showed contempt for Jesus, how he was proud and he was obstinate. You can decide for yourselves if that's perhaps a little bit too strong words. I think of Thomas a little bit as like Eeyore, always looking pessimistically, always looking on the downside. Not somebody who's a hateful person in any way, but just always morose, always on the downside. Now, in his questioning and in his doubting, he nevertheless is somehow seeking. A former Archbishop of Canterbury, William Temple, put, I think, gave a rather beautiful description of Thomas, I think. He described how he had such vigor of disbelief, but such vigor of disbelief plainly represents a strong urge to believe, held down by common sense and its habitual dread of disillusionment. 
I think this is a good description of what Thomas is like. He doesn't want to be let down, but he's seeking to believe. He's giving particular qualifiers of what he, what he, what he will require to believe, but he is still seeking somehow. Although the kind of qualifiers that he gives are a little bit gross, to put it frankly, um, unless I see the nail marks on, my, on his hands and put my fingers where the nails are and put my hand into his side, as Carvaggio represents in this painting, which he describes as the incredulity of St. Thomas. Now, whether Thomas actually did this isn't described in the Gospels. John describes in his Gospel how he certainly invited Thomas to allay his doubts by reaching out and putting his hand into his side. We don't know if Thomas actually did that. But if you think about it, it's a rather bizarre request to make. You can almost imagine the disciples when they've had to endure Thomas saying this for over a week, thinking to themselves, Thomas, we're not sure if you really belong as one of us. You're being a bit weird um, to make this kind of a demand. Why might he be making this kind of demand, though? Well, if you look back in chapter 20, when Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene, she doesn't recognize him at first. She thinks he's a gardener. Likewise, the two on the road to Emmaus, described in Luke chapter 24, they don't recognize Jesus at first. It's only when he breaks bread that their eyes are opened and they suddenly realize that he's gone at that point. They run back to tell the other disciples. Jesus then appears in their midst Thomas presumably being absent at this point, if you look at the parallel account in John. But Jesus appears in their midst, and even they don't immediately recognize him. They think he's a ghost, they think he's a spirit. And Jesus has to say to them in verse 39, look at my hands and my feet, it is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost, a spirit, doesn't have flesh and bones as you see I have. And even then some of them are beginning to doubt until he starts to eat a bit of broiled fish. So in some ways, Thomas's doubt isn't that exceptional. Some of the disciples at the time failed to recognize Jesus for who he is immediately. Maybe this is why Thomas is going this bit further. He's wondering, could it be an apparition that the other people have seen? Yes, they've all clearly seen something. Thomas is looking for something much more concrete. It's a kind of objective criteria he's looking for. He's not doubting in the same way that, say, a rationalist philosopher like René Descartes would have been who began to question absolutely everything, and the one certainty that he recognized that he had was that he was thinking, and therefore if he's thinking, even if his thoughts are deluding him in other ways, even if his senses are deluding him, as long as he's thinking, he knows that he exists. Je pense donc je suis, cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. Thomas isn't like this. The way Descartes was questioning and doubting was beginning with, with, with his very self, his certainty was only built on his self-certainty, whereas with Thomas, he's looking at an external objective reality. That's what he's questioning. It's more like a scientific questioning. It's empirical. However, even with that, our eyes can sometimes deceive us. The prophets repeatedly through the Old Testament talked of people who would see but not perceive, hear but not understand. We read that in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 9. Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 21, Ezekiel um, chapter 12, verse 2, repeatedly people who have ears but do not hear, eyes but do not see, eyes to see but do not perceive. And we can be a little bit like this ourselves. Look at a, a few optical illusions. Got a couple of squares there, A and B. Do you think they're the same shade of gray? Anyone think they're the same shade of gray? No? 
think that one of the squares, the lower one, looks a bit darker. But actually, if you connect them up, you'll see they're exactly the same shade. Our eyes can sometimes deceive us. Take, for example, these two tracks from a toy railway. Do they look the same length? Who thinks the top one looks shorter? Hands up. Yeah, fair few folk. But let's take a ruler to them, and you'll see they're exactly the same length. Our eyes can sometimes deceive us. Or if we take another example, a, paint, a lithograph by Moritz Escher, M.C. Escher, the Dutch lithographer. This one is entitled Belvedere. A building, a Belvedere for looking at a pretty scene, a Bellevue Belvedere. Have a look at that. Does anything look odd to you about that drawing? If you look at it long enough, you probably will realize that there's something rather odd about this middle tier here. And if you were actually to try and build a three-dimensional object corresponding to this, which we can now do with 3D printing, it would look a bit like this. So sometimes our eyes can deceive us. We can fail to perceive that things are different even though they look the same, fail to perceive that things are the same, even though they're different. And sometimes we can have something really weird in front of us, really remarkable, and we fail to see that it is really weird. As in this example. We can fail to see what is in front of us. And maybe this is why Thomas had this rather weird, rather gross demand that he reach out and put his finger into the wounds that Jesus had on his hands or his wrists, and reach out his hand into his side. Rather bizarre request to make. For us, we live in a different world where we're not able to see the risen Jesus as closely as Thomas was. But nevertheless, Jesus describes us as blessed if we rely on the testimony of other people, as Thomas failed to do. Evidence is clearly very important to a lot of the writers in the New Testament. We've heard an example in John's first epistle. In verse 3 of chapter 1, he describes how we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. Now, this isn't something that Thomas was was listening to, the, 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 the encouragement of the other people. They were eyewitnesses, but he had doubts as to what they had actually witnessed. But sometimes with a perspective of faith, we can see more. We can see more. Paul, when he's writing to the Corinthian church in his second epistle, in chapter 5, verse 7, he describes how we live by faith, not by sight. Or as some translations will have it, we walk by faith, not by sight. What we think can sometimes influence what we're able to see. It's as Louis Pasteur put it when he was writing, Dans les chances de l'observation, le hasard ne favorise que les esprits préparés. In the fields of observation, it's fortune that favors the prepared mind. What you're thinking about, what you're aware of, is going to make you more fully capable of seeing more. C.S. Lewis expressed this well. He described how he believed in Christianity. He says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not simply that I see it, but because by it I see everything else. His faith gives him an explanatory power, an ability to understand and to comprehend 
the world around him that he wouldn't otherwise have. And you can find this stream of thought in which faith influences and forms understanding through various theologians through the ages. Cardinal John Henry Newman, for example, described how he believed in design because he believed in God, not in a God because he believed in design. Karl Barth similarly described how his faith in Jesus Christ enabled him to perceive and understand that God is the creator of the universe. And Anselm of Canterbury, likewise, writing in his Prosologian, described how he had credo ut intelligam. He believes in order that he might understand, in order that he might see more. I think this is something that we are invited to do. Although we might often have the maxim, which might seem to express what Thomas was demanding, seeing is believing, I found it remarkable the faith of a number of friends I've had who have been blind. A friend in Liverpool, a friend here in Belfast, one of them who lost his sight from retinitis pigmentosa, another blind from birth. Time doesn't permit me to go into detail, but a couple of books I would recommend are by this clergyman here, Mike Endicott, who lost his sight, and writes particularly of how his experiences with his guide dog has helped to inform his faith. We live by faith, not by sight. So although Thomas is looking for an empirical reality, nevertheless, he is seeking all the time, and he is seeking in fellowship with others. Although he's absent from the community to begin with, absent from the other disciples when Jesus appears, he nevertheless is with them through that week, and he is with them when Jesus reappears again. Eight days later, Jewish reckoning of time, probably the following, the following Sunday, the following Lord's Day. Faith, as the theologian Tom Torrance puts it, is not something that is blind in itself. It is something that engages with an objective reality, our own experience of God, and how God has interacted through Jesus Christ in history with the universe. He describes, writing in his book Theological Science, faith here simply means, faith here simply means the fidelity of the human reason to what is actually there in the encounter to what is actually there in the encounter, the personal presence and act of God in our human and historical existence. And it brings us on to something else. Faith isn't something that is irrational. It is rational. It is something that seeks understanding. It is reasonable. It is foundational to all our outlook on the world. But also, it is relational. It is relational. At Lent last year, a number of us were looking through a book, Being Disciples, by the former Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams. And Rowan Williams expressed this rather beautifully, this relational aspect of faith. He describes how faith as dependable relationship is something other than faith as a system of propositions or faith as a a confidence in my own capacity, in my own capacity to master truth. It's much more that I, myself, can be mastered by truth. That I can be held even when I don't feel that I can hold on. And in the case 
of Thomas, who may seem like Eeyore, may seem rather depressive, we nevertheless see, I think, somebody who is willing to hold on, willing to be held, even when he can't feel that he can hold on. Somebody who is still seeking Jesus, seeking his Lord, still hanging out with the other disciples. And when Jesus finally appears to him, his response is a declaration of faith that surpasses even that of Simon Peter's in Matthew chapter 16, where he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. What Thomas says is an exclamation which might be regarded as almost blasphemous, except that Jesus accepts it. He says, my Lord and my God, not my Lord, my God, which might sound more like blasphemy, but my Lord and my God, a remarkable declaration of faith. It's almost as if Eeyore has been transformed into Tigger, a complete transformation, so that Thomas, according to tradition, as Paul has described to us, goes on a remarkable journey to India, becomes a patron saint of India, and if you meet folk from Kerala, they will certainly describe how Thomas is almost like a patron saint to them. So what do we learn from Thomas's example? How do we apply this ourselves? Well, one is the importance of fellowship with other Christians in times of doubt. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, exhorts us to seek fellowship with others, to seek fellowship with other Christians, to seek fellowship within the church. And all the more as we see the day approaching, the last days. Thomas doubted, especially when he was away from the other disciples. But he rejoins them later. The psalm that we had from the lectionary this morning, which the, or some of our young people were performing with the puppets, Psalm 133, talks about how good it is when brothers live together in a unity, how important it is to have a fellowship. But there's a flip side to this at the same time. Although Thomas, in his doubt, is still seeking God, and God responds, still seeking the risen Lord Jesus, and he responds, and is still in fellowship with other Christians, Jesus commissioned then is not to tell the world to come to church. It's important for us as believers to do that. His commission is, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. It's not to tell people to come to church. It's for the church to go out and impact the world. That is what Jesus is instructing us to do. So as we leave from here at the end of today, let us keep that very much in mind. If we are struggling with doubt ourselves, to seek encouragement from other Christians, to hand over our doubts to God, and he will respond. I have personal experience of that myself. When I was a teenager, I went through a period quietly of doubting. But nevertheless, through that, continued to seek God and he responded to me in prayer in ways that, for fear of going over time, I won't go into the details, but come up and ask me afterwards. One example, just to give a trivial example, was I had a history teacher in school, Mr. Willoughby. He was a teacher who really encouraged me, and I wanted to, to please him. The first time I was attending his classes, he said to me, you're going to be really good at history. I don't think I was really good at history, but I felt a desire to please him. 
And one time I was forbidden from staying up any later to work on a particular history essay by my parents. So I didn't have an alarm clock at the time, and I just prayed, God, wake me up at four o'clock in the morning so that I can finish work on this essay. Didn't have an alarm clock, but I did have a digital watch. Woke up in the morning, looked at my watch just a couple of seconds after four. Wow. Now, that was a kind of an immature faith that I had at that time. Okay, there was a particular need, a particular imperative to work on that essay to please Mr. Willoughby, but I don't think my biological clock is that well-tuned that I could wake myself programmed at exactly that time. It was like Gideon's fleece for me. It was the expression of an immature faith, and I wouldn't seek to test God by repeatedly doing something like that. But nevertheless, God responded to an immature faith when I sought him. God, I believe, will do the same with each of us when we hand our doubts over to him and earnestly seek him. And particularly when we seek him in the fellowship of other Christians, seeking their wisdom, their advice, their input, their perspectives. But ultimately, our commission is not to stay within the church. It is to go out and impact the world. As the Father has sent me, as Jesus said, so I am sending you. Let us pray. Loving Father, we thank you from what we can learn from Thomas, that even when we have doubts and questions, that you are listening, even if we're not aware of it. We thank you that as Psalm 34 describes, you are close to the brokenhearted. We thank you, Lord, that you hear us, that your ears are attentive to our prayer. Help us to help others who are doubting and who are struggling in their faith. Help us that we might be people of unity who build each other up as we all seek to follow you. And help us that we might also more fully impact your world, both by showing unity, but also through an infectious love for you. As with Thomas, we proclaim both with our words and with our lives that you are our Lord and our God. In Jesus' name, amen.